One last thing before hopping to the text, and this actually has to do with the text. That was all. That was like the housekeeping, right? That's the, you know. Um, have you ever been part? And I know this is kind of a more quiet church. John told me this isn't going to be one of those churches that's like amen and yelling at you. Um, so you don't have to actually answer out loud. But have you ever been part of team building activities? Maybe you're part of like, you know, at work or um, at school or you're on a sports team or some kind of group or organization. You've done team building activities. And um, I have, and I'll, I'll say this, as having been someone who's experienced all of those, they should really call them team-destroying activities in my mind. I don't know why six sadistic person out there at some point thought, let's come up with some s- simple, mundane tasks and make them extraordinarily impossible for a team and deceive the team to tell them this is going to make you stronger, right? You know, it's just like, it's so frustrating. Team-building activities are, are, are great. Do you ever notice... The one person who's not participating in the team building activity, the person whose idea was that you should do a team building activity that day, right? They don't join. They're not doing it. They just watch you, and usually they laugh at you, right? I was part of this. Um, it, I, I don't know if you know this one. There's this one called the Helium Stick, this team building activity. And I see a nod there. It's, it's the worst one. If you're ever part of a team like we're doing the Helium Stick, just be like, oh, my water broke, or I don't know, come up with my son. <laughs> you have this bamboo stick or some kind of light stick and members of your team stand on opposite sides face each other and you put your hands like this and the bamboo stick rests across it and you have to lower it all the way to the ground and all your hands have to be touching it the whole time and if anybody's hand stops touching it then you start again um it's actually i don't think it's possible um and i was part of a very dysfunctional team one time maybe maybe it's because i was there but Oh man, it brought every ounce of dysfunction and brokenness out of our team in that activity. And I was like, I walked away from that being like, I want to be on this team less than I did before we did the dang healing stick. So team building activities are difficult. And that's because they're kind of set up to expose weaknesses, but also because that means we have to work together and we have to depend on each other. I think collaboration in the workplace and industry is kind of a buzzword nowadays. And it sounds really good until we start doing it. And then it becomes pretty hard, I think, sometimes to work together. And it can be, depending, it doesn't matter who you are. I'm an Enneagram 3, the achiever, right? Collaboration is difficult for me because now I'm sharing my limelight with people. That's, you know, that's the vice that I show. My wife, she's a one, a perfectionist, right? You're like, is she married? No, um, she's a one, a perfectionist. Oh, it's brutal being in group projects if you're a perfectionist or on team building activities. Because is everyone else a perfectionist? No, they don't know how to get it perfect. Maybe you're a nine and a peacemaker. How painful is collaboration when you're a nine and a peacemaker? Because you disagree with everything people are doing, but you can't voice it. It's all internal. You're like, I hate this. And you're like, I love this, guys. It's perfect. Maybe you're the eight, the challenger. You might love the things that your team's doing, but you feel, I have to disagree because I'm an eight. You know, like, whoever you are, those who are not familiar with the Enneagram, trust me, we're going to move to the text and we'll use something that's actually common ground. But whoever you are, it's difficult to work together. So we look at Galatians 6, 1 to 5. I think what we see on display is that Jesus came and he basically started like the greatest team-building experience, experimental say, of all time. He's like, okay, guys, you have to do this together. And I think for many of us, the idea of doing faith in, in like a personal, private way is a lot more like palatable. It's a lot simpler. No one's in our grill. No one's judging us. No one's messing with us. And I think in this passage, and in the teachings of Jesus, we would see something that says, you're doing it wrong if you're trying to fly solo in this. This is what Paul says. We're just going to work through this passage, make some observations, 
Uh, if you miss most of it, at the end, I'm going to try to sum it all up in four words, and then we'll do some Q&R. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. There is so much packed into this first verse. We're going to spend a lot of our time here. If you're one of those people who's like doing the math and you look at how much time I spend in verse 1, you're like, oh my goodness, we're going to be here for four hours. Don't worry, we'll, we'll cruise through some movements. Brothers and sisters, hey, people in the community of faith, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. Well, watch out. Don't get tempted. Don't fall into that same sin when you're doing it. So you have kind of these two types of people. You've got people who are caught up in this wrongdoing, um, kind of overtaken by it. Some translations say caught up in the sin, and then you've got those who are spiritual. And there's this picture that those who are spiritual should help that person who's caught up in any wrongdoing. Now, those are kind of two different types of people. And if I were to say, hey, people who are currently consider themselves caught up in wrongdoing sit on this side, and people who are spiritual sit on this side, I think many of us would feel like, I don't know which side to sit on, right? Those are hard categories to identify with. Because in one, you're more of a, like a villain or a bad person than you'd like to think of yourself as. But you who are spiritual? Oh, man, that's like a, that's a big title, right? I love this picture here of Paul saying, hey, in your community, there are people who are struggling, who are caught up with something. That The, the language he uses there is, is not, you know, this language of burdens that he's going to use in these first two verses is not just something heavy that something, someone's carrying, but something that's like insurmountably heavy. So it's not just like, hey, someone's carrying like a big rock. It's like someone's got a rhinoceros on their back. This, this sin that they're caught up in, this struggle that they're overtaken in, is this unbearable, impossible Low. Unless you are like jacked like me, you're probably not going to be able to give a rhinoceros a piggyback around anytime. So someone in the back is like, well, baby. no, I'm talking about like full-grown, big daddy rhinoceros. None of us can do that. And we're like, well, I don't like to think of myself as that. I'm not that bad. But then you who are spiritual, go restore people. And then that's when everyone in the church sits back and is like, well, I'm not the pastor, right? Like, I'm not the, you know, I didn't go to seminary to become spiritual. John told me, uh, he's told me a little bit about your church, and one of the things he said he's been talking about a lot, I love the language, is these different types of sets, bounded, fuzzy, and centered set. And I got to take in his uh, message on the end of Galatians 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that list of like all those vices, and then the list of all those fruits of the fruit of the Spirit. And really, this is, I think the picture Paul would say here is, is, is not, which one of these two are you? But if you're in the community of faith, you're likely both of these characters at different times. Hopefully you're always one of these spiritual people, but at moments you're going to be this person who's caught up in this sin. We've all got that. We've all got that dysfunction. We've all got that brokenness. And sometimes it shows up like you, you've been free of like a struggle or an addiction or a sin for like decades. All sudden, we've all been there. It's so demoralizing. It flares back up and you're like, how am I back here again? I think there's a real honesty in recognizing that all of us struggle. James writes about this in James chapter 3. He says, we all, we all struggle, we all stumble in various ways. It doesn't matter what it is. It's some kind of simple struggle. And that definition in this verse, I would say, those who are spiritual is not someone who is kind of like within a bounded set or even some kind of fuzzy set that you try to lay out. We do this in churches a lot. You who are spiritual, and we go for the category of sin. Well, I don't do those sins. I just do these sins. John was talking about this in the... In the in the list in, uh, of vices in Galatians 5, right? Well, like sexual immorality, that's outside of the set, right? 
But like envy, that's not so bad. Strife, we're a church. All churches have strife, right? We've been around for a while, you know. The reality is, is that all of us are called to follow and pursue the righteous, holy one, Jesus. And throughout scripture, it teaches, be holy like God is holy. This idea of having a centered set is just saying, in all ways, I want to be someone who's growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I hope someone's fact-checking to make sure I don't miss any. But am I going towards that? A follower of Jesus is one who is spiritual as you grow in these ways. But many of us struggle in different ways. All of us get caught up in that. And as a follower of Jesus, it's okay to struggle. As long, and sorry, I, I'm, I'm like feeling, I gotta move past this first, but I wanna say this last thing. Sometimes I think we have weird verbiage around struggling with sin. And that usually just means, hey, I'm messing up with sin. Struggling with sin is a good thing. Wrestling with it and saying, hey, I'm trying to struggle with this thing is a good thing. How many of you have been part of a small group or like you've been there for years and years and the person like is confessing the same thing? Maybe it's you. The same thing. I've done this over and over. Oh, I'm still struggling with this. At some point, it's like, are you actually struggling with it? Or are you just like, you're just like laying down dead and you've resigned and you're like, yeah, that's just me. I'm just there. And I have areas in my life where I would say that about myself. It's just like, I wish I was struggling more. I wish I was fighting against this more. And that's what's beautiful about this team that we're a part of. Another great picture for the community of faith is a family. I mean, team building activities, families, those are perfect parallels, right? I mean, I, you probably noticed my insane little humans that I had up here. They're four and one. And, and we try to do things as a family. And oh my goodness, like we, we had to leave for church this morning. We live in Langley like seven hours in advance. We had to start getting to the bed, right? Because it's like, you know, my one-year-old's like, I need to buckle up my own car seat. And it's just like, but you suck at it. You're so slow at buckling up your car seat. And when, they, when we don't want them to help, they want to help. And when we want them to help, they don't want to help. You know, it's like, hey, you want to clean your room? No, it's like, oh. Okay, well, I'm going to go work on this project. Oh, let me help. It's like, sweet. It's going to take me three times. And that's the mass of working in a family. And we're centered on Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to exist in this new family, this great team-building experiment. And this is what it looks like. This is my favorite verse. To me, this is the key verse of this whole thing. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is really heightened language. Paul doesn't often make statements like, hey, do this thing and you fulfill the law of Christ. He says a lot of things. You know, the fruit of the Spirit, really great list. We quote that a lot. That's like the type of thing you might see in like a really good Christian's like house on the wall. That's like a nice wall decor verse type stuff. But it, there's not as like heightened of language there. there. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not like... If you do this, you fulfill the law of Christ. This is a big station. That's Paul's missionary. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. And it's, um, there's this like, there's this height language that Paul's using. He says, this is how you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I think there's an interesting wordplay thing that Paul's doing here. And John's been working through the book of Galatians. He's been talking about the law because in Galatians, you have to talk about the law because the word shows up, the Greek word namos shows up like 32 times throughout the book. And always it's talking about the Old Testament law, except right here. All of a sudden, he's doing this wordplay. He's like, you want, you guys are clinging to the old law to try to find like your identity. You're trying to like work it out. Let me show you a new law. Here's the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Because here's the picture. Here's what the gospel really is, is that Jesus looked out at a burdened world said, they can't carry that rhino on their back all on their own. Let me go down. I'll give them a hand. I'm going to bear their burdens for them. But then what? He leaves. And what does he do when he leaves? Is he just like, oh, that's it. That's a good ride. 
It's like, now you guys, this family of faith, the body of Christ, this community of believers, you guys now go and bear one another's burdens as I did for you. It's an insurmountable burden, and Jesus empowers us and gives us the strength by the work of his spirit to be those who can carry on his law and his commission to go and bear one another's burdens, because every single one of us in this room, whether it's your first Sunday here, that's me, whether you're the pastor here, that's John, just in case you didn't know, um, you will have burdens that you can't bear. And two quick comments about this. We hear a verse like, bear one another's burdens, and I think it's like, oh yeah, that sounds so good. You know, we care for each other, we're empathetic and stuff like that. And my guess is that most of us, if we think about the exchange of bearing burdens, it's a two-way street. Someone has to allow someone to bear their burdens, and someone has to bear someone's burdens. Probably most of us, it's really quick and easy for us to be like, yeah, I'm available, someone needs to talk, I would listen to someone. I'm and, but then it's like, okay, but would you share your burdens with other people? That's probably where we're like, well, actually, I'll do, like the, I'll do the bearing part. Someone else can do the sharing part. There are two big components, I would say, that are here and that are they're really key and essential and I think are deeply biblical but maybe aren't expressed in these plain of terms. When it comes to this bearing of one another's burdens in a community of faith, I think there are two key components. The first one is this extreme selflessness. I mean, think about Jesus. I mean, he's pretty busy, right? Like, he's... Creating the world, running it, listening to all the prayers, dealing with things. And he gives up his time to come. Like, how many of us are like, we're just too busy? We've got too much. Our schedules are too full to be hospitable. Our schedules are too full to be radically hospitable and to let other people. Bearing each other's burdens is tough because all of us are fine with that initial conversation. Oh, if you've got something going on, hit me up. But what if that requires, like, hours of time and walking up? Spiritual gifts, full disclosure, me, mercy, low. This is all challenging thing for me. I actually give a crap about like what people are going through for a long amount of time. So I don't know what the, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word here, but I, that's the beautiful thing about being a guest. I could have said way worse. You, know, <laughs> you have complaints, you got John's email, right? <laughs> but it's like, to deal with people's garbage, that's like hard for me. It's this extreme amount of selflessness. It might mean that you need to give up things in your schedule. It might mean, like, I know there's a, like a new season of Stranger Things might come out, and it might be like, oh, maybe don't watch as much as that. Like, I know it's crazy, and it's insane to think about that, but it's like someone might need you to selflessly give to them. I like to say that Jesus had a terminal disease, and it was called selflessness and generosity. It's terminal because it's so selfless and generous that it eventually killed him. Like, worst case, we're so selfless and generous with our lives and our willingness to bear one another's burdens that it costs us something. And then we see Jesus one day, and it's like, it costs us so much. He's like, yeah, I predicted that. So there's this selflessness in bearing one another's burdens, but there's this flip side, this transparency and vulnerability. Now, if you go on, like, your Bible app and you search transparency or vulnerability in the Bible, I don't think you'll find much for results. But what you also won't find in the Bible is much that ever teaches about secrecy, keeping secrets. In in Romans 12, maybe you know this passage with Paul, he's talking about us as a community of faith, and he says, just as all of us have one body, it's the same in Jesus. He's one body, and all of us as members form this one body. And in this way, he says, he slips and says, and each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. The stuff going on in your life, your struggles, your issues, your secrets, those aren't just yours. You're not your own. This is a radical community. It's really different than the world. It's not like the world. 
And I think that vulnerability and transparency is probably pretty intimidating and scary at times. But that's what this two-way street of bearing one another's burdens requires, is a community who says, you know what? People might break my trust. People might hurt me if they know my stuff. People might judge me. People might look down on me. Jesus loves me, so I'm willing to invest in that way. And then on the other side, being like, people might share stuff that I want to judge them for. People might share stuff that I want to look down on. People might, I might find out that someone in my small group is really jacked up. It's good. It's a good mirror for yourself to realize that you're probably in the same place too. I know, we've got three more verses. Let's pick it up. Okay. For if anyone considers himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This, to me, this is like, sometimes in Paul's writing, I'm like, where'd that come from? This is kind of one of those interesting, like, okay, well, we're going a little off script here. Um, and this is how I would connect this to this text, and maybe there are different commentators who would read that would do it a little bit differently. For someone, if anyone considers himself to be something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. At the heart of following Jesus is his deep sense of humility. You have to be humble because you're recognizing that you're a broken sinner that is, like, living in some messed up, bounded, or fuzzy fuzzy cell, when really Jesus calls you to follow him and says, hey, bring your burdens, I'll bear them, I need to forgive you because you're a broken sinner, there's humility there. I don't know if you've ever done that. I'm going to bring it back to team building. That team building activity I have where they blindfold one person and there's like an obstacle course they need to go through. And the only guide is like the voices of the people around you, your teammates who are like. And if you've got good teammates, they tell you how to get around stuff. If you've got bad teammates, they might lead you right into like the big open snake pit that you didn't know wasn't part of the obstacle course or something like that. Imagine someone puts the blindfold on, the arrogance to then plug their ears and be like, I don't need you guys. I'm going to crush this obstacle course on my own. Maybe Daredevil from, like, you know, is he from DC, Marvel, whatever? You know the superhero. Maybe he could do it. But the rest of us can't. And that's our state as humans, is that we do have blind spots and blind areas in our lives. And the difference is whether or not we're willing to listen to people from the outside. This idea of bearing one another's burdens and being a restorative community isn't just sitting around by the phone waiting, oh, someone calls me and they're going through something, I'm here and available to listen. It's actually being people who are engaged, sharing our own struggles with one another, and then saying, hey, I see in you maybe a potential struggle, and maybe I can help you journey through that. Being the teammates on the side who are loving enough to bring that type of restorative peace that Jesus offers, where he says, I see some brokenness, I see some blind spots. I've been there, and I'd love to journey through that with you. I once um, knew this man who was the lead pastor of the church, and he was the most self-reliant man I've ever met in my life. He had a lot of great qualities, but... I think one of his real hangups is he was so self-reliant. He would give to other people. He'd help other people. But when you try to help him, when you try to give to him, maybe you know someone like this. Maybe this is you. When you try to give to him, when you try to help him do anything for him, it was just a brick wall. Now, in our world, we might say, well, what a great self-sufficient person. They're not drain on the system. He's, like, even keeled. He's, you know, he's just, he's strong. He's stalwart. I look at Paul's words, and I'm like, what a shame. That he's basically unwilling to participate in the receiving end of fulfilling the law of Christ. And I know this man struggled with that and he, he thought about that a bit. And I think it's easy for us to like applaud ourselves or applaud others for just being like, you got it on your own. While not recognizing you put a blindfold on and you just can't see everything around you. Let each person examine his own work. And then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. These last two verses are interesting because they seem to kind of just contradict things that we've just read. 
Let each one take pride in his, own, in his own self. Some translations say, let everyone just boast in their own work. Can't we just read that people weren't supposed to think they're something when they're nothing? That's weird. Like Paul, where you kind of just running out of stuff to say, and you're just like, I don't know, piecemeal it together at the end of this letter. Here's what's interesting. Throughout scripture, there's this language for like pride and boasting that is used a lot. And sometimes it's used in a negative way. And really the negative connotation isn't about pride or boasting and existing. It's about the object of that. It's about taking pride and boasting in yourself. So in the Old Testament, I don't know if you remember the story where Solomon, he decides to do, um, uh, a, oh wait, was this David? Uh, one of the kings, I'm screwing something up here. By the way, one of the kings decides to do a census, and it's because he's so fascinated with his own power. I'm so, is, is that David? David? Yeah, David, sorry. John's like, he's never coming back. Okay, heretic. <laughs> he's so wrapped up in what he's become that he takes pride in boasting in himself. We are supposed to be people that are exuding pride and boasting in the right direction. That's what worship, that's what, like, honor and glory, this word glory in the Bible is all about, is living lives that put on display proudly the work of what Jesus is doing in us. Are we living a centered set life where we're journeying toward Jesus, where we see love and joy and peace and the whole list of nine and more growing in our lives? Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your good deeds shine before others so that they can see those and glorify your Father in heaven. We should be a boastful and proud people. Now that language sounds really weird, but we should be people who are so excited to go out into our workplaces, into our schools and say, look at what Jesus is up to. It's amazing. And some of it's because I'm living in a restored community with others where we're engaged in this team building activity and my teammates are telling me when to turn left and when to turn right and we're working together and we're helping one another and we're growing because the power of the Spirit is transforming us. That is what you boast in. That's what you take pride in. Paul writes about this in these letters. And he talks about, it's like, I'll boast even more in what Jesus is doing in my life. He says, don't compare yourself to others in this passage. Don't, don't look at others and be like, okay, I'm doing well because, you know, in my small group, these people are struggling with that. I'm not really struggling with that sin. Always compare yourself to Jesus as you take that one step closer. Like, oh man, God's doing really cool things. Like Christiane's story, right? Like, she comes up here and she's like, yeah, I've been dealing with some garbage in my life. I've been dealing with some baggage, and it's been tough, but here's what Jesus has been doing. And she boasts about it, and that's the type of boastful life we should live. Verse 5, this is a weird contradiction. For each person will have to carry his own load. Be like, Paul, I don't know if you read verse 2, but you said we should carry one another's burdens. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let's make some quick wrap-up comments here, and then I'd love to invite some Q&R. I actually remember one time studying this book um, with some other pastors. And the one pastor said, well, I think verse 5, carry your own load, is like the ideal. And verse 2 is kind of like, well, if you have to, get other people's help. And it's almost like a visceral reaction within me. I held it in, but it's like, no. That's not it. It's, that, that's like, that's not it at all. The language that Paul's using here for this load is no longer the rhinoceros. He's talking about more like a backpack that any of us can carry. This is like, this is what we've all been given, our lot in life that all of us carry. It's the thing that at the end of life, when we meet Jesus face to face, we take it off. And he looks in the backpack. And he's like, hey, let's take a look at what you did with what I gave you. What's that analogy Jesus uses of... Um, the, the manager who goes away and he gives some of his servants some of his gold to take care of. Well, he gives all of us something. He puts something in all of our backpacks. 
Something that he puts in your backpack is the burdens of other people at Reality Church and your own burdens. And at the end of your life, you'll say, well, what did you do with that? Did you engage in bearing other people's burdens? Did you allow others to, did you fulfill the law of Christ in doing that? This is no longer the rhinoceros. The rhinoceros can't be lifted by any one person. And I think Jesus will look at our backpack and say, were you interested in helping people carry that rhino around? Were you part of the team? Were you part of the family? Were you part of caring for one another in this way? Did you acknowledge your own issues and share those with others in vulnerability and transparency rather than turning to secrecy? And in turn, did you make a space where people could do that in return and where you would actually walk through that with them in a restorative way that pushes them closer to me? There's no contradiction here. Each and every one of us will, at the end of our lives, be responsible for everything that we've said and done and everything that we've chosen to be and everything that we've done. And one of those big choices will be what Paul's just talked about. Did you participate in bearing one another's burdens and carrying each other's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ? I've said a lot of words. I don't remember them all. I certainly don't expect you guys to remember them all. Um, I think this will be on a podcast, so if you want to remember them all, you can go like write them down, put them on your wall, and like, have, create a shrine around my words, but I don't think any of you will do that. I will leave you with these four words that I think would best sum up what Paul's saying in this passage. Share burdens, bear burdens. Share burdens, bear burdens. It even rhymes. I'm quite proud of that. This is what a community of faith, empowered by the Spirit, centered on Christ, looks like. John's would talk about this theme of God looking at Jesus and saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then you get to look at yourself and say, I'm a child of God. When we look at ourselves and say, I'm a child of God, because we can often be quite self-centered, I think what we forget to acknowledge is, that means all the people around me, even the people that frustrate me, those annoying people, those crazy visitors that come with their insane kids at the front that are distracting me while I'm just trying to sing songs to Jesus. What's wrong with that? All those people who are weird around you are also children of God. And Jesus is like, this is my family. Just come be a really good family member. Like, love my kids. Love one another. I think about this with my kids. If my, if, if my, particularly if my four-year-old does something that is disobedient or whatever, it's frustrating. When she does something that's disobedient and inflicts pain on her one-year-old daughter, that's even worse for me as a father. And I think this is the type of community that Jesus creates. He's like, I'm not just calling you to love one another because that's what I did. I'm calling you to love one another because you're all my kids. And I care about you guys so much. And today, I acknowledge that you have burdens. You have issues. You don't have it all figured out. Don't think of yourself more highly than you are. Don't think you're someone when you're no one. And recognize I need to share these burdens in return I need to be willing to bear those burdens. I'm going to stop talking. I'd love to just invite maybe a couple questions. So if someone's got a question, I don't know if you guys, this room's small enough for people to just shout, right? So if you want to throw up your hand or if you want to just stand up and start shouting, I'm just going to sit like you guys, but I'd love to hear maybe a question that pops up out of that. So yeah, for sure. What's your name? Oh, I met you earlier. Sorry yeah. about that, Corey. Yeah. Corey, yeah, I'd love to hear your question, man. Yeah, I really appreciate your insights. And I guess, like, what are some of your thoughts on what of our culture prevents us from this kind of push? Like, maybe the bigger culture, but also the church culture. Yeah. People are just too often pressing on us. This church, I've got to be a good boy. Hope the world don't want to be a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. You're asking about these two different cultures, man, and I'm going to, 
ramble for a couple minutes and hopefully there's something in there and maybe someone's written a book that's a lot smarter than me that could give you a better answer but I think your question is really insightful you're talking about a bigger culture and then church culture and church culture should always be our primary questions a lot of times people say what's the greatest threat to the church and a lot of times people are like this agenda or this thing I'm not going to name them right now so we don't get too controversial without unnecessarily I think the greatest threat to the church has always been and always will be Christians. Um, and I'm going to say something. I'm going to kind of like go to something that is like my one thing as a pastor. And I'm going to bring it back and try to give you something. I think the biggest issue facing the church today is our abject biblical illiteracy. And I say that really lovingly. But most people in this room have been part of churches for years and have never even read through the Bible once. Um, and I don't say that in a condemning way. I say that in a, let's take this seriously. Because you'll come listen to me talk for 30 minutes. You'll listen to John talk for, he told me sometimes between 20 to 5 to 40 minutes. So it depends how on fire he is that week or whatever. Um, but we spend so little time hearing the voice of God. And if we're called to be as image bearers and follow in the way of Jesus and, and live that out, well, the greatest obstacle is probably just having no, I like to call it like the silencing of the lamb. You know, it's just like we don't hear his voice. That's what empowers us, the Holy Spirit speaking through us. I say that with love. If you're here and you really struggle to read the Bible, man, I just encourage you. It's life-changing. Probably in this day and age is we have this sense of like hyper-individualism that means like whatever you do is okay and whatever amount I want to let you into my world is okay. And I get to choose it all and no one else gets to choose it. And I think that that probably is in the church a lot as well. And it probably flies pretty contrary to what Jesus and Paul would teach in scripture. And they would say, you're not your own. First of all, you're bought with a price. You belong to the lamb. Second of all, you belong to this community. Um, And now your life is to be shared with one another. And when you start to share your... See, like I said, I think we're more often apt to bear people's burdens because that's safer rather than sharers. It's when you start to share yours that you start to actually recognize the power and the need in that type of a community. So a lot of times people say, oh, I've been in a small group. We don't want any new people because it takes years to build up trust. My question is always why? And I know I might be stepping on some toes right now. Why? Why does it take years to build up trust? Is that because that's what the world's told us or because we use kind of a metric for like trust and comfort in Christian community? I mean, Jesus did this pretty quickly, right? He like showed up and he started like calling people, his disciples Satan in front of each other and like he just like just put it all on display right away. Um, it's always when that person in the group is brave enough to share like their real deep, dark struggles that it breaks something in the group. It's not time. It's, it's, it's like boldness that I think only comes from the power of the Spirit. So I think in a really individualistic culture where you get to define all the rules, if we come back to what Jesus says and he says, just, just share your life. If people hate you, if people persecute you, they did that to me. They did that to the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. Great is your reward. So your question was such a good question. The problem with really good questions is usually I give a really bad response. But um, hopefully something in there is helpful. I'd be happy to chat a little bit more. I... How much time? Do we have time for one more question? I don't know. One more. Okay. Um, sorry, I don't, I'm not as good at keeping church schedules, maybe because I don't know. But one more question. I'd love one more. Thanks so much for that, Corey.
Yeah, I love that question. Yeah, accountability is like almost non-existent nowadays in the Christian community. Most churches and boards and their pastors and people are, don't really have any kind of real strong accountability around them, and it's tough in our culture. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He says, take this. Totally, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, see it, dude. Um, he's like, take that log out of your eye, but then go and like try to remove the speck from one another's eyes. I think this is, this is my thought. I'll share it really quickly, and then we'll turn it over to the band. Um, I think a lot of our Christian participation as it relates to community is often, um, we often look at it through the lens of the results. What will happen if I say this? What will happen if I do that? And we're really involved in trying to like have the right outcome or the right results. When you'd be pretty hard pressed to find a part of the Bible that says, make the results be good. That seems to be Jesus's work, the work of the spirit. We're called to obedience. We're called to challenge one another with gentleness, but to challenge one another. And I think a lot of times we're like, okay, well, we don't want to offend anyone. And again, I'd kind of say, well, why not? Obviously, we don't want to offend people, but Jesus offended people all the time. I mean, like, (laughs) imagine one day John gets nailed to the cross because of his work here at the church. We would be like, oh, he's a failure. Well, that would be ironic because that's exactly what happened to the person that he's following after. Right? I hope that doesn't happen to you, but I see that you're already prepped for it up here. So. <laughs> but just kidding, John. Don't crucify John. I said this. <laughs> if we're mostly concerned about whether or not we offend people and whether or not our accountability works and what happens, what the results and the outcome in people's lives are, if we're mostly concerned in controlling that, then we often won't be obedient. But if we're mostly concerned with being obedient, then I think we can trust the results in God's hands. And some people are going to be offended. If you're doing Christian community right, people are going to leave. People are going to be offended, just like they did with Jesus. Just like Paul, how many times has he deserted, right? I don't think he was doing it wrong. It's just, it's the human reaction to the gospel. If no one's getting offended and no one's leaving and no one's bothered by kind of a heightened sense of accountability, we might be missing something. So that'd be my hot take. Now... That's really easy for me as a guest to say, because I can come and say and do that. Working that in the community is a lot more work. But um, yeah, thanks so much for the question, Carly. I'll get the band to come up. Um, and thank you, thanks again, guys, for letting me come and hang out with you guys. Um, such an honor, such a pleasure. I'd love to pray for you as the band gets set up, and then Mitch is going to lead us in a response time. Jesus, thank you that you saw us, a burdened people, in need of restoration, in need of your forgiveness, in need of your forgiveness, in need of the gospel, and you gave everything to come and offer us forgiveness. Though I've only been part of this community for an hour and a half, I sense that there's this desire for this type of gospel work to happen in this community, this type of restorative work to happen in this community. God, I, I ask that you would honor that, that you would empower that, and that through your spirit you would move in this community of people to be that type of place that radically is engaged in one another's burdens in the ways that you are. So that reality church would be known as a place that fulfills the law of Christ. We love you, Jesus. Amen.